0: Good morning and welcome to West Seattle Christian Church. If you are new, welcome, if not, welcome back. Uh, We are in the midst of our Unqualified series where we're looking at various people in the scriptures whom God has called uh, to his purposes despite the fact that they may appear to be unqualified. All people who uh, against the odds in God's story that he's telling about himself in Scripture they are integral parts of his story and so this week we're going to look at the person of Esther a young woman um, uh, Israel from Israel and uh, she basically intercedes with a king uh, to save her nation from destruction and we're going to ask the question what does that mean for us Um, I want to start by kind of summing up part of like when you look at um, all of these people who seem unqualified in in that we're looking at uh there is a quote from bono the lead singer of youtube that i think we might agree with which kind of sums up this series of talks and uh, he said this it used to bother me that the bible seems to be full of messed up people but now i find that comforting <laughs> and i think i do too um, i think that's the purpose of this series or partly uh, ultimately that god uses messed up people and I hope that's very comforting for you. It is for me because we all definitely qualify in that respect. So our story today uh, comes from the book of Esther but first I want to let you know that there are three books in the Old Testament that record God's dealings with his people, the Jews, after their captivity in Babylon. Uh, after that happens to them, and those books are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah deal with the remnant of people who actually return to Jerusalem. The book of Esther, on the other hand, is concerned with those who stayed on in the land of captivity, and it's basically a drama that's set on the stage of real history. So it's really happened. In fact, you can go to modern-day Iraq, and you can visit the tomb of Our two main protagonists in the story, Mordecai and Esther, you can visit their tomb there. It's fact. It's not fiction. Um, So there's a lot of fascinating detail in it. But one thing I find really interesting about it is that God is not mentioned at all in the story of Esther. But as you read it, you can't help but become increasingly aware of God's intervention throughout the drama and behind the scenes, if you will. So the story is in Esther, uh, one of the main texts that we're going to read, I I want you to read it on your own actually, is from Esther uh, 4 verses 10 through 17, and I'll have you read that on your own, and I'm going to summarize this for us today, because it it, it jumps around and it it would take a while if we actually read all of it. So um, the story actually takes place for about 480 years before Jesus was born, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was an orphan girl named Esther. And um, rather than being on her own, she was raised by an older cousin, who a man named Mordecai. And Mordecai and Esther were Jews who were living in exile a long way away from Jerusalem. In fact, they were living in a town called Susa that is about 1,700 miles away from where Jerusalem was. And, it, and Susa is in what is now modern-day Iraq. And it's where the Persian king Xerxes Uh, held sway over a huge empire, and the Jews were a minority group there, conquered people. Basically, you can think of them as refugees after a war. And so the king had his court in Susa. The capital is a place of power. It was a place of uh, really bad things. Licentious behavior was just condoned, and the king was a really kind of unstable, quixotic type of man, he he would throw parties that lasted for weeks and he would celebrate his own wealth and power and he's trying to gain influence over the nobles and over his enemies by throwing these big parties and the story of Esther actually begins in, in in a with a party like this in fact it's like the party to end all parties it's a party that lasted 180 days and at the end of the party there were supposed to be 7 days of Feasting, the wine is flowing, he's gotten out golden goblets, and everybody is like aware of his wealth and his power, King Xerxes' power. And presumably, while he's drunk, he decides to show off the beauty of his queen, Queen Vashti. Uh, and so he commands that she comes to the party. And whether or not he'd done this type of thing before, uh, knew what the expectations were, knew that all the men were drunk. The expectation was probably that she would have to come and dance uh, without her clothes on. And for whatever reason, those are enough reasons, right? More than enough, uh, she decides, no, I'm not gonna do it. So needless to say, he's really mad. Uh, And then he he goes to his advisors and says, what do I do about this, right? And his advisors say, well, now that she's done this, word's gonna get around and we're gonna all have problems with our wives not doing what we ask, that kind of thing. Our marriages and are gonna be extremely difficult to, to matter back in this patriarchal society way back then. And so uh, he their suggestion to him is, you need to write a decree where uh, she is no longer your wife and, and you should execute her and you should find a new wife. That's the solution to the problem. And so he's like, okay, I'm gonna do that. So back to Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai was a devout Jew uh, and he felt it was right to um, put Esther into a competition for the position of the new queen who is going to replace Vashti. Uh, now she doesn't kind of doesn't really want to go, but he's like, you need to do this, but don't tell anybody what your nationality is. Don't tell them that you're a Jew. Don't tell them where you came from when you get to the palace. And so she enters the competition she becomes an immediate favorite with all of the people who are preparing all of these women uh, who are in the competition. Uh, uh, She becomes an immediate favorite with them. And what they end up doing is they take 12 months of baths and perfumes and makeup and oils and all this kind of beautifying for the girls before they present them to the king. And when the king sees Esther for the very first time, to him, it's like, love at first sight, and he crowns her queen. Um, so we see the story progress, and we see that God has kind of been working behind the scenes to prepare Esther for a ho- far higher purpose than just being the, the king's favorite new plaything. It becomes clear that that it was God who caused Esther to be chosen as queen, but up until this point, we don't know why. So God is always working behind the scenes in our lives, too. It's one thing I want you to key in on here as we summarize this story. We often don't know what God is preparing for us. So back to the story. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, he's been hanging around the gates of the palace as much as possible so that he can be as close to her as possible while she's in there. And while while he's there, he hears about a plot by two guys who want to assassinate the king. And so he gets word to Esther. Esther tells Xerxes, they check it out. They find out that it's credible, that the plot is true, and the two men are then executed and the king is saved. So this event, he has, uh, uh, King Xerxes has his, um, uh, his servants or whatever uh, write down in the king's chronicle this event and all the details about it. And you need to remember that because it's going to be important later. So the kings enter the bad guy. There's, a, there's another bad guy besides these two guys that wanted to um, kill the king. And besides the king himself, who's kind of quixotic, as I said, and, and kind of messed up, um, there's another bad guy. His name is Haman. He's the right-hand man of Xerxes, and he's a really proud and cruel man. And basically... Um, it's said that he was a descendant of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a, like, a tribe of people that the Israelites pretty much wiped out in certain places uh, in the ancient Near East, okay? So you can read about that. Uh, it was about 700 years before this story in First Samuel. Uh, but because of that, the Amalekites are like the sworn enemies of the Israelites. And so Haman... Uh, it's said that he is from that background, from that tribe. And so, you know, maybe he has that, he's remembering all of that history, I don't know. But he, every day when he, because he's Xerxes right-hand man, every day when he leaves the palace grounds, he demands that all ordinary people, not high-level officials or, or royals or anything like that, but all ordinary people, not from the palace, they have to bow down to him when he leaves. But Mordecai, because he's standing there waiting around, trying to be close to Esther at the palace uh, gates, he's, he's a, a Jew and he's not going to bow down to anybody but God. And so once Haman figures out who Mordecai is and, and that he won't bow down, he is furious. And so he starts making a plan to exterminate Mordecai and all of the Jews in the kingdom. Just a bit of an overreaction, Right. So Haman does issue a decree that on a certain day, uh, it's going to be open season on all the Jews. And it's going to be fair game for, for someone to kill them. And he goes further than that. He says, if you kill a Jew on whatever day that I designate this to happen, then you get to keep all their stuff as well. Now, Haman, he's an astrologist. So he's always trying to read signs and he's throwing dice, doing some weird stuff like that. And he's trying to do that to decide what day it's going to be that this de- that the decree will take place. Um, and so, really, what this is this is the first recorded, the first recorded episode in history of genocide against the Jewish people. And as we know, it's not it's not the last. Um, meanwhile, one night King Xerxes can't sleep, so he calls for the king's chronicles the record of everything that happens to him that they have that he has them write down he says bring that to me so apparently he's like this is gonna put me to sleep because i can't sleep so come and read it to me and as he's listening to it read he he rehears the part about mordecai saving him and when mordecai revealed the assassination plot that he'd overheard he had forgotten all about it apparently and so he calls for haman to come and honor uh mordecai kind of like in belated recognition Um, that he had saved the king's life. So as you can imagine, Haman is just, he is livid, because here he is, he's planning to kill Mordecai, and then he is forced to obey the king's order. uh, While he's still plotting to kill uh, Mordecai and the Jews, Haman has to honor Mordecai. But eventually, the decree that Haman crafted, it it goes out all over the nation, and Mordecai hears about it. And he gets a hold of Esther, and and he suggests to her, you, Esther, have the ability to avert this disaster if you can get to the king and tell him what's up and plead for him to have mercy on on all of us but esther knows something uh that's difficult to get around and that is that you are not allowed to go visit the king or go see you're not allowed to go see the king unless you've been specifically invited to do so and if you do that without being invited and she knows what kind of man he is don't forget what he did to his last wife um She's she's very much afraid of her per, for her personal safety for her life. Okay, so Mordecai though he puts the pressure on with Esther, and we and you can read in Esther uh, four verses twelve through sixteen what's probably the most famous words of the story, and he says this to her. He says, "Who knows whether you have not come whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this?" So eventually Esther is convicted and she fasts. And she prays, and then she basically risks her life by going to the king unbidden, uninvited, with you know. And she confesses to being a Jew, and she tells him about this plot that Haman has to kill her and her cousin and all the Jews. And she pleads for mercy, and for him to cancel this decree. And you know what happens? He agrees. He agrees, and of course, in the end, Haman gets it. He gets his un- his comeuppance, and. He is executed on the very gallows that he constructed to execute Mordecai on. And in the end, thousands of lives are saved. Okay, so now that you've heard the story, the drama unfold here, um, I want to offer a few implications for us that I think are applicable for our lives today. So, implication number one God is still sovereign. Esther. Uh, she becomes the intercessor who saves an entire nation. And God's sovereignty, his will and his power and his plan um, over the whole narrative becomes clear. And I would ask you to apply that to your life right now. and, And I will try to apply it to mine. Has God's sovereignty changed these many thousand years later for us? Has God abdicated his sovereignty or his authority to someone else? Has he abdicated his sovereignty to democracy? Has he given it to comfortability, to complacency? Has he given it to materialism? Has he given it to fascism? Has he given it to any other powerful influence in our world? Has God abdicated that? Well, the book of Numbers tells us that God is not man, that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And in the new Testament, we we read this, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So the question is, do we live our lives in the certainty that God is still sovereign? Do we see him working behind the scenes in the midst of all the little things in our lives? Maybe we need to train ourselves to see him working in these ways. And this is a lesson I've been learning a lot more specifically in my life because you can, you can miss the demonstrations of God's sovereignty in your lives if you're not looking for them. There are countless demonstrations of this all the time. Case in point, the man who works with me, Barry Swindon here at the church, he is a good friend. He became a good friend years ago. Um, we needed someone else to be working at the church. I didn't know who that person was going to be. God is working in the details through many different moments and and things in his life, in my life, and in the life of our church so that at just the right moment, we were able to hire Barry on at our church. Is it coincidence? Or is it God's sovereignty? There's a lot of examples of, of situations that could be We could chalk it up to coincidence we could talk it we could chalk it up to god's sovereignty Um, when we're aware of situations like this do we dismiss them as coincidence or do we allow them to build faith in us so that we are confident in god's sovereignty in our lives i love this quote from john wesley where he says we we should every one of us consider for what end God has put us in the place where we are. I'm going to read that again. We should every one of us consider for what end God has put us in the place where we are. And and when an opportunity offers of serving God and our generation, we must take care not to let it slip. So why are you positioned where you are? Why do you work where you work? Why do you live where you live? or where you go to school, or where you study? Why do you always go to that same coffee shop? Why do you always go to that one park to relax? Not discounting the free will that God gives you and I, but maybe God has assigned you to those places in your life for a reason. And maybe he's assigned you to our church community in this place for such a time as this. Because God is still sovereign. Implication number two, God's people and his purposes still have an enemy. I think this story makes it clear. The story of Esther is primarily about a plot to kill off God's people and how God's sovereignty prevails through one brave, obedient young woman. God's people had an enemy. God's people have always had an enemy. The enemy of God's people is the same enemy that's in opposition to God himself. It's clear who God's people were in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament and now God's people are his church. That means you and me and we still have an enemy. The Bible calls that enemy Satan, the prince of darkness, the prince of this world. And that enemy is still setting himself up against us. His plan has always been to divide and conquer, to offset the truth with distortion and lies and he is still determined to destroy God's way of life, just as he was in Esther's time. So 2,000 years ago, the ultimate act of intercession took place as Jesus, the Son of God, died in our place on a cross for once and for all, claiming victory over the enemy. Esther took her place of intercession before King Xerxes with these words, She basically says in that story, and if I die, I die. Jesus did die, but the sovereignty of God did not leave the story there. Jesus defeated the enemy, he defeats death by rising back to life and leading the way for all of us to live in this new reality of God's ultimate sovereignty and defeat over that enemy. And that, dear friends, is important because it's where we come in because of implication number three, God's people, are still the solution to the problem when mordecai continues to press esther about his plan to approach the king with an invitation her response without an invitation her response is not positive she's like i don't want to do that everybody knew what the king was like she said it was more than her life was worth to approach the king if you read the story and mordecai of course he loved esther but his concern was for the bigger picture and that overrode his concern for her and he basically challenged her uh, self-preserving mindset. Esther was challenged for embracing that value in her culture to preserve yourself. Um, She was being challenged for uh, caring more about her own comfort and her own safety than for the safety of thousands of people. So through those telling words, Mordecai was reminding Esther that she had been chosen to set her own interests aside, to let go of her ambitions and face the enemy head on. So over the centuries, Mordecai's voice, as recorded in scripture, I think it echoes down right to us, to our generation, in our time, in our place. We are chosen by God to set our interests aside, to let go of of self-interest to consider the bigger picture and to face the enemy of God head on. That is the challenge that is set before us even if you and I feel unqualified. God will qualify us. Esther was to risk her life and her legacy with no guarantee of a positive outcome. That, that's the for such a time as this challenge that she accepted so the question for you and me for us is this is there a for such a time as this challenge for us today and i think there is god put esther in a place where her voice could be heard a place of authority and it was not a natural fit for her and the question is has he placed you in a place like that he does that to us even today Uh, because our birthright what qualifies us is our birthright in Jesus she used the name of the king to to solve the problem we use the name of the one true King Jesus we are here for such a time as this it's the opportunity of a lifetime so my friends we are not in the same situation as Esther but I want to remind you that spiritual wars are raging all around us unchallenged all the time the enemy of god uh, and the enemy of god's ways uh, the ways of peace of righteousness of love and compassion and joy and trust the enemy of god's uh, purposes is still at work amongst us scripture tells us uh, to let us boldly approach the throne of grace And ask what we need to ask and my question to you is are we doing this are we are you doing this are you boldly taking your prayers before the throne of God for the big things for the big picture I know that we all have our personal things that we take to God and our personal prayer list our friends and our family and that kind of thing but are we modeling our prayers after that of Jesus when he says thy kingdom come your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Esther boldly approached the throne of a godless, unreliable king at the risk of her very life. We have the opportunity every day at any moment to come directly before the throne of the king of heaven and earth, the king of the universe. And we aren't risking life and limb to do that. Maybe we're risking our comfortability our complacency, uh, our time. But Jesus said, let it be done according to your faith. Not according to your fame, not according to your success, not according to your courage or your reputation or or your political persuasion or anything like that. He said, let it be done according to your faith. Friends, don't miss your Esther moments. Amen.